Thanks so much, Caleb. That was beautiful. Jeremy, thanks for the accompaniment as well. You guys are really a blessing to our church, so thanks for serving so well this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 12. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this amazing gospel, the gospel of John. And this morning we come to a highlight in the gospel. I think every verse, every chapter seems to be a highlight. But this morning we're going to look at the triumphal entry. So if you are taking notes this morning, you'll see that there in your outline, the title, The Triumphal Entry, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Here's what the apostle John writes. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read John 12 this morning and to look at this incredible story of the triumphal entry. I pray, God, that we would learn much today and we could apply truths to our life that would help us to adore Christ and to worship him as our only king. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we look at the triumphal entry, I want to tell you about the most expensive coronation that the continent of Africa has ever known. Jean Bedel Bokassa was a military officer and the head of state of the Central African Republic. Being the Central African Republic was not enough, so he proclaimed himself as the emperor of the nation and renamed it the Central African Empire. This royal coronation took place on December the 4th, 1977, which was the 173rd anniversary of Napoleon's coronation, which is why Bokassa chose this date. The committee in charge of accommodation had the task of finding suitable rooms for an anticipated 2,500 foreign dignitaries and guests. Another committee was responsible for making the capital look its best for the coronation ceremonies. Streets were scrubbed, buildings were painted, and beggars were driven out of sight. The empire's textile industry was kept busy producing hundreds of new suits for local guests. Strict rules of protocol dictated the colors, white for the schoolchildren, navy blue for the middle management, people in the private and public sectors, and then black for cabinet ministers and senior officials. Bocasa's coronation ceremony had to faithfully replicate that of his favorite figure, Napoleon Bonaparte. And so with staggering attention to details, they hired Paris sculptor Olivier Bryce, was invited to construct the throne, which, which a team of 30 
French artisans were hired to fashion the two-toned, gold-plated bronze throne resembling an eagle with golden wings. The price of that throne, $2.5 million. Bryce, the sculptor, also bought an antique coach in Nice and refurbished it in Napoleonic style. Eight white horses were brought in to pull the gold-covered carriage. A total of 13 outfits were ordered for the new king at a price of $145,000. Ladies, don't become envious, all right? The, the emperor's coronation gown alone cost $72,000. An imperial crown, scepter, sword, and other pieces outlined with expensive jewels totaled $5 million. The crown was encrusted with rubies, emeralds, and 8,000 local diamonds, the largest which weighed 80 carats. Guys, how many carats did you buy for that engagement ring for your fiancé, right? This one was 80 carats. And so in order to take the guest around the capital of Bengai in style, 60 brand new Mercedes Benz were ordered from Germany. When everything was added up, the ceremony cost $30 million. Now that's 1977. In today's currency with inflation, it's said that that wealth topped $125 million. Just how long did Bokassa serve as the self-proclaimed emperor? Two years, 291 days. In less than three years, he was overthrown. His kingdom was short-lived. His reign came to a screeching halt as the next power-seeking tyrant took over. Today, I want to talk to you about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. And as far as we can tell, this triumphal entry cost zero dollars. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. The Bible says the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus taught that if someone takes your cloak, give him your tunic as well. There were no extravagant preparations, no horse-drawn carriages, and no gold throne to sit on. This was just Jesus, full of grace and truth. Just Jesus, born as a carpenter's son. Just Jesus, born to die so that sinners like you and I could live. Jesus didn't come to show off. He came to save his people from their sin. Jesus didn't come to experience the luxuries of this earth. He came to show us the love of heaven. At his first coming, Jesus didn't seek to be crowned as an earthly king. He came to be crucified so that those who humble themselves before the Lord might be lifted up. Oh yeah, and even though Jesus was crucified, he still lives. He was resurrected from the grave. He reigns as a spiritual king over a spiritual kingdom, and his kingdom will know no end. There is no coup. There is no jealous ad, 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 adversary, excuse me, and there's no other king who will ever take his place. And so today, as we look at the triumphal entry, I want to give you three headings that will help you see the beauty and the significance of this event so that you too might cry out, Hosanna, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so our first heading this morning is, the triumphal entry happened on the right day. It happened on the right day. Look again at verse 12 where we read, On the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so this verse tells us, again, on the next day. And so as you might remember, Jesus had come back from Ephraim to Bethany on Saturday for a special dinner. This was the dinner where Lazarus reclined with him at the table. And this was the dinner where Martha served, presumably in a humble attitude. And this was the dinner where Mary took a pound, like we looked at last week, of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We're told that all this happened six days before the Passover. And so here we are in verse 12 on the next day, which would have been on Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. This is one week before the resurrection morning. This week is what we call the Passion Week, and it all begins with the triumphal entry. Now, when I say the triumphal entry happened on the right day, I mean that it happened in accordance with the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel. And so your first blank says this, Daniel's 70 week prophecy. Now, you're going to need to turn with me to Daniel. That's in your Old Testament. And it's going to be Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. I know we're all loosely familiar, maybe to some degree, of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. But I want to try to help you see it a little bit more clearly because it's connected with the triumphal entry. And so Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 26, while you're still turning there, let me remind you that Daniel is a book of prophecy. While Daniel is in exile for 70 years in Babylon, he had been mightily used by God to point to the true God, the most high God and the ancient of days. And Daniel was also given the ability to interpret dreams and to read the handwriting on the wall. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel gives some very specific information about the coming of the Messiah at his first advent. Daniel 9, 24, he writes this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. The question, what does all of this mean? Well, in verse 24, I want you to notice just in that one verse, there is a list of six things that are going to happen at some point in the future. The first three in that list of verse 24 all happen at the first advent of Christ, and the second three will happen at the second 
advent of Christ. The first three listed there, verse 24, to finish the transgression. This means something is going to happen that is going to restrain sin. Israel has been wandering from God's truth and his word long enough, and something is going to happen to bring Israel back. The second thing in that list, to put an end to sin. This is something that is going to happen that will judge sin with finality. Hebrews talks about how Christ comes and his judgment will put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The third thing that's mentioned there is to atone for iniquity. And so that means that a sacrifice had to be made, blood has to be shed, a life was to be given. All three of those point to the first advent of Christ. Now, verse 24 goes on to say that there are three more things that will happen, and we understand that to be pointing at the second advent of Christ. And those three things, there in the middle of verse 24, would be to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so this would be an eternal righteousness of Christ set up potentially at the millennial kingdom and then for the eternal state. Number two, to seal both vision and profit so there's no more revelation needed. It's all complete in Christ. And then number three, to anoint a most holy place. And this would be interpreted possibly as a millennial temple from which Christ would reign. So all that to say that this prophecy of Daniel is talking about the first advent. And then it's also talking about the second advent of Christ. Now, when do these things take place? Notice the first part of verse 24 says... 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And so while the Jews are in exile in Babylon, as they're getting near the end of that exile, Daniel was given this prophecy that has become known as the 70 weeks prophecy. These 70 weeks refer to 70 weeks of years, meaning that if all the years were taken literally, there would be 70 sevens, or 70 times seven, 490 years in total are involved in this prophecy. Now, verse 25 begins to break it up for us a little bit, where he says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince. And so verse 25 is saying how much time will transpire between when Israel comes out of exile to rebuild Jerusalem and when the Messiah, the prince, would come, the anointed one. And there's going to be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. You'll look again at the middle of verse 25. It says there are seven weeks and then 62 weeks, or literally translated seven sevens, and then 62 sevens. And so this is a reference to 69 of the total of 70. And so the prophecy was to begin at a specific time, and that was when a decree was to be given to rebuild Jerusalem, which most scholars believe was fulfilled by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., 
You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. He's the cupbearer to the king. He looks sad in the king's presence. The king says, why are you sad? He's like, how can I be happy when my city has been destroyed? And so Artaxerxes tells him, go rebuild the city. And that's recorded in history. And that's when the clock starts. That kicks us into these 70 weeks or these 77s. There's three different time periods. The first seven, then 62. And then there's that last week. And so the first time period or the first seven weeks or seven sevens includes 49 years, which guess what? Is exactly how much time it took from the time Artaxerxes gave the decree for Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the wall that surrounds it. And that's well recorded again in the book of Nehemiah. Now, after that time was completed, then we get into the 62 weeks or 62 sevens, which would equal 434 years, which we believe is represented by the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, all in the intertestinal period. And so then, in verse 26, Daniel said that after these 62 weeks, the anointed one, or Messiah, would be cut off. And so while scholars have slightly differences in the details, Pretty much all evangelicals have placed the ending of these 69 weeks, the first seven and the 62, somewhere between 26 AD and 33 AD. And it's also worth noting that the crucifixion of Jesus took place right in the middle of that time span. And most believe that it took place in the year of 30 AD. Now, here's what we're saying. If the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah for him to go rebuild Jerusalem and the wall did take place in 445 BC, which history records, and if you add the seven sevens, that first time span of Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem, and then the 62 sevens, the time of silence, you get 483 years, and then you come right up to this very day, this Sunday of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of the Passover of year 30 AD. That last period of seven weeks, by the way, is yet to be fulfilled in the future by a seven-year tribulation. But the point is this, as far as Jesus entering the city on the right day, very significant fulfillment of this Daniel 70 weeks prophecy. The point is this, that the Messiah must be cut off. And that is the Hebrew word cut off in that Daniel prophecy, karat, which is used to describe how a sacrificial animal would be slaughtered during a covenant-making ceremony. So what the, the prophecy again is saying is that the Messiah would come, the Messiah would be sacrificed, he would come in and be cut off at exactly this time, and we understand that Jesus came and fulfilled this prophecy bearing our punishment on the cross when he atoned for our sins and he inaugurated the new covenant by the shedding of his blood. Now, if you want to read more on this, because I know it sounds pretty fascinating, you'd be like, Adam, are you kidding me? Are you telling me that that prophecy became literally true to the very day? Well, I'd invite you to read, if you would like, Sir Robert's The Coming Prince and then also Harold Honer's Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, Both of those are incredible resources that point to the fact that based on all the historical data, based on the Bible itself, I believe it best to be understood that the triumphal entry did indeed take place on 9 Nisan 30 AD. 
And in fact, in Sir Robert Anderson's work, he says that it comes out again, get this, to the very day of the triumphal entry. It's pretty unbelievable, right? That with, with God, things can be predicted and fulfilled to the very day, even though it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yet we also see in verse 26, still there in Daniel 9, that there's another prophecy. It says, after the Messiah is cut off, the city and the sanctuary or the temple will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. Now that reference to the prince, we think, is a reference to the final head of the Roman Empire. And when did this take place? Well, it took place when the Romans destroyed both Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., meaning that the Messiah must have come before 70 A.D. In other words, for the Daniel prophecy to be fulfilled, it had to have been fulfilled when the city was rebuilt and not when it was destroyed again. And we all know that Jerusalem was destroyed again in 70 A.D. So what we're saying is this. If you're here waiting, thinking that somehow Jesus is coming for his first advent, as many Jews might still be waiting for the Messiah to come, I would say to you this morning, wait no more. There is a timing to the arrival, the first advent of Jesus, given in this Daniel 70 weeks prophecy, and I'm telling you, he's already come, and he's already been cut off, and he's already died for the sins of the world, and we're not waiting for Jesus to come again for the first time, we're waiting for him to come back for the second time, and in that first coming, he set up his kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, as the anointed one, and Jesus is the only one who could atone for our iniquity. But there's a second coming when Christ comes back for his own. And so what we're seeing here is the triumphal entry happened on the right day, according to the Daniel prophecy. But next, I want you to see this also, your next blank, this day was destined to come. Let's say that maybe you're not so sure about the specificity of the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy, since it is a little bit debatable that we certainly know the day was going to come. It was destined to come. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us time and time again that his time had not yet come. At the wedding in Cana, Jesus said to Mary, my hour has not yet come. At the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, we read, my hour has not yet come. Again, in John verse chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus is thinking about going up to that feast, and he says, but my time has not fully come. In John chapter 7, verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But now, here in John chapter 12, we're seeing that Jesus's time has come. The time is now. And according to God's decree, this is the time for Jesus to be glorified through the crucifixion and the resurrection. Look back at John 12. And in verse 23, again, I've just chronicled for you how throughout the first part of John, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has yet not come. And then in John 12, later in this chapter, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Look at John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world. And so we understand here that Jesus did all of these things according to God's design and according to God's timing. I mean, this is not happening by accident. This is not just happening there in the spur of the moment. It's Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so we're saying that God predetermined this day, that God predestined this day, and that God brought about this day. And isn't that so true of what God does with every day? Your next blank. God determines what happens to you on any given day. If we know that God's in control of the day of the triumphal entry and the day of the crucifixion, then we know he's in control of every day. He's in control of every single day of your life. You may feel at times like things are out of control. You may feel like the plane is about to crash. You may feel like the ship is going down. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God is in control of your life. There are no surprises with God. There is nothing that happens in your life that God doesn't know about and, yea, bring about for your good and for his glory. You could be having a difficult day in your marriage. You could be having trouble with your kids. You could have made a bad grade on a test. You could have lost the ball game by a ridiculous score. But you know what the Bible says? Every day is ordained by God. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when yet there was none of them. Love that, right? Not only did God fashion us and form us in the womb, but he also fashioned and formed every day of your life. Every day is planned by the Lord. All our days are written in his book, and God saw us before we were, and he fashioned us in our mother's womb, and he knew us before we knew a thing, and he was at work in us, even when we didn't realize it. It's Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. Isn't that just like the Lord when we think we're doing something good or we think that we're finally accomplishing something, we're reminded like, that's not me. Every step I take, that was established by the Lord. Everything that I do, it's all established by the Lord. He brings it about. He pointed me in the right direction. It's Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. When we're operating in the flesh, we try to pull out our own set of plans. When we sometimes try to follow uh, our own plans, we, we draw our own blueprints. We at times get off course, but the Lord establishes our steps. God is always at work. He's always training us in his ways. He's always correcting us with his truth. Frail as we may be, sinful as we are, discouraged as we may feel at times, the Lord is always at work. He's always at work. He's always bringing us into the situations that help mold us and shape us and cause us to cry out to him for his help and for his wisdom and for his presence to be right there with us every step of the way. And so what we're saying is this day of the triumphal entry happened on the right day. And not only did it happen on the right day? But secondly, that second heading I want you to see this morning is that it happened in the right way. Happened in the right way. That next blank, the thorough record of the triumphal entry. It happened in the right way. Look at verses 13 through 15. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the triumphal entry is one of those rare events of Jesus' life and ministry that is covered by all four gospel writers. This event is so significant that no gospel writer would have considered leaving it out. And different accounts provide additional information, but these accounts don't contradict each other. They simply are synthesized together to give us a full picture and the full account of the triumphal entry. And if you put all four gospels together, the triumphal entry would have gone something like this. As Jesus leaves Bethany to head into Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples into a small village in order to fetch an animal on which he plans to ride into the holy city. In reality, as Matthew clearly points out, there were two animals, a donkey and her young colt. Surprisingly, it appears that Jesus makes use of the donkey's colt, while it is presumed that the mother donkey is either trotting by its side or else being held back by the disciples. The disciples find everything just as Jesus had said. They find the donkey and its colt tied to a stake at the entrance of the village. There are some people standing around. Why are you untying them? Ask the owners. The Lord has need of them, is the simple answer. And the owners immediately let the animals go with no further questions. When the disciples brought the animals to Jesus, they throw their outer garments upon both animals, not knowing at first which one Jesus will choose. When it became evident that Jesus wanted to ride on the colt, they assist him in mounting this small animal, and Jesus starts off toward Jerusalem. Most of the people who accompanied Jesus from Bethany spread their garments on the road. Others cut palm branches from the trees, and with these they prepare the way for the Lord. Meanwhile, the multitude of pilgrims who had previously arrived in Jerusalem and had heard of the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead came pouring out of the eastern gate of the city, coming out to meet Jesus. And as the two crowds meet, that one coming in from Bethany and coming out from Jerusalem, then they have this incredible enthusiasm. It's mounting. The entire multitude is now in a mix of excitement as they have the 12 disciples and you have the close friends and followers coming from Bethany. You have a host of pilgrims that are down from Galilee who were in Jerusalem for the Passover. You have local Jews from Judea and you even have many of the hostile Pharisees who are watching. They're watching this whole event. And then descending the western slope of the Mount of Olives and drawing near to Jerusalem, the combined crowds, with the exception of the hostile Pharisees, start to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Blessed is the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of our father David, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The part of the multitude which had been with Jesus when Lazarus was raised from the dead, continue to bear testimony with reference to this astounding miracle. And as a result, the excitement and the enthusiasm reached a climax. The Pharisees 
besides themselves with envy as they listen to this mad cheering appeal to Jesus for him to stop it. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. And when the city comes into full view, Jesus, realizing that much of the praise with which he had been receiving was shallow and was based on the expectation that he would be the earthly political messiah, breaks down into loud weeping. Before his prophetic eyes, there arises a vision of Jerusalem as a besieged city, a city surrounded by Roman soldiers. And Jesus says in Luke, excuse me, Luke 19, 41 to 44, when he drew near the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now that Luke passage, that prophecy of Jesus came true. In A.D. 70, when the Roman army dismantled Jerusalem and literally pulled the city down, brick by brick, stone by stone. And that's why if you go to Israel today and you go to the southern steps of the Temple Mount, you'll see columns and you'll see stones all stacked up on each other as a result of the fact that the prophecy of the temple being pulled down, every single stone pulled down. Now, there's a couple of stones, Herodian stones, that are still standing at the base of the Temple Mount, but this prophecy is talking about the temple being completely torn down. And so the idea here is that all of this is just like, it's just like, prophecy becoming true and more prophecy being given. And then as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the entire city is stirred. And those who had remained behind as they see the crowd coming into the city, praising someone sitting on a colt of a donkey, ask, who is this? And the answer comes back, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And arriving in the temple, Jesus begins healing and, 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 and teaching the, the, the children and healing the blind and the lame. And the children in the area began to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priest and the scribes in their anger asked Jesus, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus answers, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And the Pharisees, filled with frustration and envy and rage, they all uh, say to each other, you are, uh, we, you are, you see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. So this is all a picture of the four gospels synthesized together of the triumphal entry. And so what I've already told you that is happening, this happened on the right day. We're now saying that this is happening in the right way. And so in fact, if you look at your next blank, it says the fulfilled prophecy of the triumphal entry. We've already looked at the Daniel one, but there's a couple of other prophecies already being fulfilled on this day, and one of those is in Zechariah chapter 9. So let me invite you to turn there because it's that significant. Zechariah, very end of your Old Testament, chapter 9. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet 
That means that after the Jews returned to Israel from Babylon, Zechariah served as a prophet who was to encourage the people of the future glory of the coming Messiah. And Zechariah was written to promote spiritual renewal so that the people would call upon the Lord with humble hearts and commit their ways to him. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he writes this. Tell me if you've read this before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Look at it. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, you got to remember, Zechariah would have been written four to 500 years before Christ. And it foretold exactly of this triumphal entry of Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's king, how he would come to them. This prophecy doesn't talk about when he's coming, but how he's coming. And it says that he would come on a donkey, on the foal or the colt of a donkey. And that's exactly what Jesus did. This was a direct fulfillment, the triumphal entry, of this Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. Other prophecies we see fulfilled. Look at Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, where we read, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And so again, it was in the Matthew account of the triumphal entry that we read how the children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And then Jesus said to them, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. One more prophecy. Look at Psalm 118. As you turn to Psalm 118, this is where the crowd is saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Psalm 118 was the last psalm included in the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms, Psalms 118, excuse me, 113 to 118, Hallel, is where we get the, the word hallelujah from. The Hallel was to be recited or even sung on joyous occasions, and the term Hosanna is regularly included in the Hallel. Hosanna means help, I pray, or save now, I pray. And the Hallel was sung each morning by the temple choir during the major Jewish festivals. Listen to Psalm 118, verses 19 through 26, where the psalmist writes, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in us. Verse 25, save us. In the Hebrew, it's the word Hosanna. Remember, it means save us now. So Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so what we're reading in that Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118, the verses I just read, particularly blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is the people are affirming their hope that the Messiah was there. They're affirming these messianic psalms all designed and written to point to Jesus, and now they're saying he's here. This is the one we've been expecting. 
And so we've seen the full detail of the triumphal entry. We've seen how it was a fulfillment of scripture. And now let's take a moment and look at the humility, your next blank, the humility of the triumphal entry. Obviously, when Jesus came in humble, Zechariah 9.9, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, we're looking here at the humility of this king. I mean, he came in this incredibly humble way. Now, this is really unbelievable. I mean, what kind of king shows up on a donkey? The Roman emperor would have shown up with scores of soldiers and military attire. He would have been riding in a chariot pulled by powerful horses. Roman generals were known to ride white stallions showing their strength and their conquering presence. We've already read about Bokassa in Central Africa who had this elaborate coronation. But Jesus, meek and lowly. Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, humble and undistinguished, shows up on a donkey. And not just a donkey, but on the colt or the foal of a donkey. This also has significance because under the Old Testament, only those animals which had never been worked could be used for sacrificial purposes. In the same way, only this animal, which had never been ridden, was worthy to carry the sacrificial lamb of God. How appropriately does this point to the uniqueness and the purity of our Savior? And isn't that consistent with the whole picture of the incarnation? Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the Bible tells us and shows us perfectly in the triumphal entry, that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself when he came to earth. He humbled himself when he was born in a stable. Jesus humbled himself when he became a man. He humbled himself when he was born into a family of no earthly notoriety. Jesus humbled himself to work as a carpenter. Jesus humbled himself to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus humbled himself to die on the cross so that we could be saved. Jesus's humility is something for us to emulate. James chapter 4 verse 10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so we're seeing the triumphal entry happened on the right day. It happened in the right way. And just quickly, we'll look at this last one here, number three. The triumphal entry happened with God's sovereignty on display. Check this out. Your first blank. Jesus forces the members of the Sanhedrin to change their timetable. Look at verses 16 to 19. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. 
Look, the world has gone after him. So I'm saying that Jesus forced their hand. And we're asking, how? Well, how, how did Jesus force their hand? Well, do you remember Matthew 26, 3 through 5? Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, but not during the feast, because that might make him out to be a martyr, and they understood things could get even worse. So the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 leaders of the Jews, plus the high priest, wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to do so on their timetable, maybe after the dust had settled a little bit after Passover. They wanted to arrest Jesus quietly. They wanted to have him killed, but initially they did not want to do this during the feast because of the potential uproar of the people. But guess what? God had a different plan. God had a different timetable. Therefore, Jesus prepared to publicly enter Jerusalem on purpose, on this date, to force the issue of his death. The Jews would not be able to hold back. And Jesus knew that the jealousy of the Pharisees and their lust for power would compel them to arrest Jesus and to deal with this problem once and for all. And so in John 12, 19, again, the Pharisees say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so the Pharisees could wait no longer. They must act and they must act now. Now, why was this go time for Jesus? Because Jesus wanted to enter Jerusalem precisely at the time that would fulfill Daniel's prophecy and so that he would be crucified on the same Passover day as the lambs were being sacrificed. In God's sovereignty, at God's appointed time, on God's timetable, Jesus presented himself to die in conjunction with the Passover lamb. Which is why years later, Paul says to the Corinthian church, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump for you are already unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. My friends, the irony of all of this is that the Sanhedrin was never in control. Pontius Pilate was never in control. The Romans were never in control. Judas was never in control. God was always in control. And he was orchestrating every detail, timing every moment to bring about the death of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Now the world may think they are running the show down here, but Almighty God is the one who has ultimate control and is bringing all things to work together for his glory. Which means this, Christian, in your life, God is in control. He is in control of your triumphs. And he is in control of your trials. And the fact that God is in control should humble you and it should cause you to trust him that it's about his timetable. It's about his doing. It's about him bringing it about for his glory and your good. Now, not only do we see Jesus force the issue here, but we also see your next blank that Jesus voluntarily lays down his life for his sheep. As Jesus forces the issue of the crucifixion, he does so voluntarily. This is not Jesus hiding 
and getting caught. This is not Jesus trying to avoid the Pharisees and getting smoked out. This is Jesus coming down Broadway to fulfill his Father's will because the time is right now. And because his hour has come, Jesus sets into motion this very memorable Passion Week that will forever mark the history of redemption. And as we studied in John chapter 10, we learned that Jesus lays down his own life voluntarily again and again in John, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus offers his life as a ransom for many. Jesus's death pays for the sins of those who will repent and believe. Jesus's death accomplished salvation once and for all. Jesus's death was an act of love and obedience that he gave willingly and joyfully. And you might remember that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on that Thursday night of the Passion Week, and one of his disciples drew the sword, and he chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Remember that? And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then Jesus said this, do you not think that I could appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Of course Jesus could have avoided the conflict. Of course Jesus could have prevented the arrest. Of course Jesus could have broken free and escaped at any moment. But get this, he didn't want to. He didn't want to escape this trial. He didn't try to escape the cross. He wanted to give his life. He wanted to fulfill the scripture. He wanted to obey his father's will. And he wanted to die so that you and I could live. And the disciples didn't fully get it till a little later, your last blank, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to teach us. In this moment, the disciples didn't fully understand what was going on. They were afraid. They were confused. They didn't get it until later. And after Jesus was resurrected and glorified, then his disciples began to piece it all together. Then they were able to remember and to understand how each one of these precious details of the triumphal entry, each one of the details of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection were all recorded right here in the word of God. And the main reasons that the disciples finally understood is because of the sending of the Holy Spirit, the helper who will teach you all things. This is the doctrine of the illumination, that that which was cloudy has now become clear. God, the Holy Spirit, opens the hearts and the minds of his own so they can understand spiritual truths. And the disciples now have the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit living inside of them so that they could see and remember. This is what Jesus says in John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This, this helper the Holy Spirit, our paraclete, comes alongside of us as believers to bear witness to the truth. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ, to his life, to his words, to his teachings, and to his sacrifice. And Jesus even says it this way in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Did you know that that promise holds true for every Christian today? When you get confused about your life, when you become discouraged about what's going on, you have a helper. 
You have the Holy Spirit to help you make sense of it all. You have the Holy Spirit that is living inside of you, convicting you, encouraging you, revealing God's truth throughout the scripture. And if you're here this morning and you have Christ, you have the Spirit who is your teacher. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to tell you that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the returning King. Bow the knee to him today. Repent and confess your sins before the Lord, and and you too may be able to open your mouth and say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it is true that at Jesus' first advent, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. But for the believers in the room this morning who've read the book of Revelation, you know that he's coming back on a white horse. Then I saw heaven open, Revelation 19, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he has been called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, White and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, Jesus doesn't have just one, but two triumphal entries. The first we've looked at today in John 12, the second is yet to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to just dig into your word, to see truths here that we can't escape from, the beauty, the wisdom, the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing to come and to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey, the fulfillment of scripture, the timing, the way he came. God, it all just points to the truth of scripture, the truth of redemption, the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross, the resurrection, the power that we have of the Holy Spirit living in us. God, how we can't wait for that second entry when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom physically, already spiritually reigning in the hearts of his people, but the physicality of the eternal king reigning on his throne forever and ever as we want to sing out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna to him in the highest. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.